You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for March 5th, 2023, the second Sunday in Lent. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Dr. Justin Crisp. It's based on John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. So I recently saw a meme on Facebook, and this meme is going to tell you everything you need to know about the kinds of people I'm friends with on Facebook. Uh, they're all theological nerds because this meme featured a professor at one of the seminaries of the Episcopal Church. I'm not going to tell you which professor it was, nor am I going to tell you which seminary. I'm only going to say it's not the seminary I went to, nor is it the one that I teach at. I've actually learned a very great deal from this theologian, a very great deal. I have great respect for them, but I took issue with this meme. The meme was a quotation from their uh, lecture that they had given. They said, Christ is not Mr. Rogers. He does not come to us wrapped in cardigan, saying welcome, making everyone feel all nice. Those of you who know me for some time won't be surprised when I say, neither did Fred Rogers. (laughs) If you have uh, known me since 2018, when I came here as a full-time associate rector, or since 2014 when I was ordained here and uh, when I became a priest associate, or in 2012 when I arrived as a seminarian, you will know I'm rather partial to Mr. Rogers. Um, In 2018, shortly after Reverend Elizabeth and I moved into the cottage and the vicarage, um, I preached at length about the mission of Fred Rogers and about my dissatisfaction with the fact that he has been I think unjustly maligned in recent decades for coddling an entire generation of American children into state dependence and feeling like they needed to get a participation trophy from life. I was a Mr. Rogers kid. I watched it every morning with my mom, who is here today. Uh, I think you all know me well enough to know I don't look for a participation trophy out of life. That was not Mr. Rogers' goal, and it was not his effect in my life. He's a Presbyterian minister, and his mission was to use the pulpit of television in order to reach into the living rooms of children across the country, which he did. He was influenced by a mentor of his, a child psychologist named Margaret McFarland, who believed that for children to grow into people who can persevere through any hardship, and persevere in genuine goodness that they needed to be loved and they needed to know that they were loved regardless of their performance in either of those two respects. They needed to know that they were loved unconditionally. And Mr. Rogers thought that he could convince through television thousands of American kids that he cared about them, and he liked them just the way that they were. Mr. Rogers didn't just learn this from Margaret McFarland. As a Presbyterian minister, he learned it from the Gospel of John. So the Johannine corpus in the New Testament comprises the Gospel, three letters attributed to John, and the Apocalypse attributed to John, the book of Revelation, which ends the New Testament. And one of the goals of this Johannine literature is to relay to us how God solves a problem God and the world have. This problem is that God is invisible. 
God so radically transcends the world that even though God is omnipresent, God is present everywhere, God is present in no one place in particular. God is both everywhere and nowhere. We do not experience God the way that we experience things in the world through our senses. We do not hear God the way that you hear me right now through your bodily ears. You do not see God in the way that you can see the piano, and you cannot touch God in the way that you touch the piano, nor in the way that you could touch another human being if you extended your arm across the aisle. We cannot see God, John says. This is in the first chapter of John's Gospel, the famous prologue that begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and so on. There, John says, no one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Part of what is happening in Jesus of Nazareth, John says, is that God is being made visible. In the word made flesh, to use John's vocabulary, God made flesh. God the Son become a human being. God is now a something in the world. God is in one place in particular, in this person in particular, this person who you can see and hear and touch, presumably smell, etc. You, you can access this human being through your senses. This is how God solves the problem of God's invisibility. It's how God makes God's self known to us, how God reveals God's self. And for the Johannine literature, God reveals God's self in Christ as a God of love. We throw around the words, God is love, as though they were a cliche, something to be written on a Hallmark card. But in the first century, they could not be taken for granted. God is love comes to us, not from a Hallmark card, but from the first letter of John within this corpus in the New Testament. God is love, and whoever loves abides in God, and God abides in, God abides in them. And the reason why John can say that is because of Jesus, because Jesus in his life, his death and his resurrection, has showed us God's character, who God really is, made that visible for us. The most famous verse in all of Scripture is John 3.16. We heard it read by Reverend Elizabeth just a moment ago. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son to the end that all that believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I wish that John 3.17 was just as famous. For God sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world but so that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is the reason why we know this about God. And it was brought home to me in a very powerful way when I was 17 years old. I'm about to embarrass my parents who are here today and my sister Olivia all the way from South Dakota and I love that you all are here to celebrate with me and Jules. Just close your ears for a moment. Uh, <laughs> when I was 17 years old, I was in an argument with my parents. Um, I had broken curfew, cue and I roll, um, and they had grounded me. They'd said something like, um, I couldn't use my cell phone for two weeks or something like that because I had broken my curfew. 
And I was, I've always been this way, I've always been passionate, and I screamed at them. I mean, we had it out for about 30 good minutes, and I was in tears, I was bawling, and I was yelling and screaming at them how unjust this was, how unfair. I was backed up against the corner of our kitchen, um, our kitchen counter, I can still remember where I was. But it was one of those arguments where you're not actually arguing about the thing you think you're arguing about. You're not actually arguing with the people with whom you're arguing. And I didn't realize it until after I had stormed down the hallway to my bedroom, slammed the door, and buried my head in my pillow. I was still crying. I remember when my pillow felt like it was soggy. I was crying so much. I didn't realize until then that I wasn't actually mad about being grounded for breaking curfew. I wasn't mad at my mom and dad. I was mad at myself. And I was mad with God. And I had been for a long time. I grew up in a Christian tradition that had a kind of bifurcated view of God. On the one side, was a God who loved the world unconditionally. Jesus loves me, this I know for, the Bible tells me so. The God of John 3.17, it was taught to me by my mom and my dad, by my grandparents, by my music minister at our, the church we grew up at, Scott Williams. It was taught to me by teachers I had in elementary school and middle school and high school. But on the other side was an understanding of God that I, I felt like was um, kind of evil scientist who had made the world into a very elaborate gas chamber from which none of us was going to get out alive. And what would make the difference between whether we spent an afterlife in eternal bliss in a place called heaven or eternal torture in a place called hell was whether we performed the right ritual actions, said the right prayers with the right feeling and the right intention at the right time. And um, I had three friends, three real people. I'm not talking my friends in the abstract. I'm talking three of my best friends in high school who were brilliant people. They were reading books you would never imagine any high school senior would be reading in Seymour, Tennessee. Okay, these people were brilliant. And they didn't find God to be a very credible intellectual hypothesis. And that's the way some of them would talk. They just didn't believe God existed. And on top of that, they of course didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God and so on and so forth. And according to that second view of God I had imbibed, that meant they were destined for an eternity of torture in hell. And I was mad at myself because I had failed to save them. See, I thought I was pretty smart too. I thought I was pretty clever. And I thought, well, they don't believe in God yet. Just wait until I convince them by the power of my arguments. Shocker, I wasn't very convincing. And that's why I was crying that night, because I was mad at myself for failing to save my friends and mad at God for putting me in the position of having to do so. And right in that twilight, when I'm on the verge of sleep, 
you all know it, it's when you're halfway between sleep and wakefulness, I heard a voice. Now the voice did not come from outside of me. It, I did not hear it with my ears. It came from within me, but it was unmistakable. It was not my voice. And that voice said, Justin doesn't save people. Jesus saves people. And that was it. That voice changed my life. It is the reason why I am here today. I cannot tell you how liberating it felt to hear that voice, to be set freed from that burden, feeling like I had to save my friends. It was as though my soul had been given wings. And I have not, for one moment since that day, worried about the eternal state of anyone. Not my friends, not the world, and I have to say, not even you. Even though it's rather my job to do that, to worry about your eternal state. I have not worried about it because it is not my job to save anyone. It is Jesus' job. My only job is to tell people he has. I do not think I would have found that voice believable. I do not think I would have been able to distinguish that voice from a hallucination or my own internal monologue run amok had it not been for my granny and my paw, for my papa and mamma, for my mom and my dad, for Scott Williams, for Ms. Elliott and Ms. Dunlap and Ms. Burkhart, subsequently for John Tiro and Father John. These people were the priests of my first 22 and a half years. And you, my friends, my beloved, you have been the priests of my last 10 and a half. The reason God has priests is because God is invisible. And because subsequent to Jesus' ascension, he is not here either in the same way as he was in the first century. We cannot see him like we see the piano. We cannot hear him the way that you hear me now. And so God has priests, people whom the church sets aside and blesses and consecrates as people who will make God visible in the world, who will represent Jesus in our lives, who will represent Jesus who is himself the visible form of the invisible God. People we can see and whose hands we can hold and whose voices we can hear who will enter into our lives and crown our exceeding joys with the knowledge that God is not there to pour a bucket of cold water on them, nor is God an indifferent, impersonal force who does not care for them. And so these priests, they enter into our deepest sorrows too, and they soothe us with the knowledge that God is not an evil scientist who made the world into some sick version of the Hunger Games to see how well we would behave with one another, nor is, nor is God just the, nor is God an impersonal nothing who doesn't care for us, who just subjects us to the brute forces of the natural world. Rather, God is a loving God 
and our God and Father, the mystery which brought the world into being out of love. When the world curled in on itself in sin and ushered in death and decay, God did not give up on us. God could not stand to be without us. And so God hurled himself headlong into this world, hurled his son into the far country of our disobedience because he just couldn't stand to be without us. God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but so that the world might through him be saved. I could recognize that voice that night when I was 17 because of the priests in my life who made that God, the God of love, visible, credible, and believable to me. And you have done the same thing for me. You have been the priests of my last 10 and a half years, and I don't just mean Father Peter and Reverend Elizabeth, although I do mean them. I don't just mean, I don't just mean Pastor Martha, who is here today, although I do mean you. I don't just mean Father Mike and Mother Lisa and Mother Anne and Bishop Grine. I mean you. So God made me a priest right here, and God made me one through you. It, it all happened right here. Um, I used to sit right here where Amanda is in my little skinny tie um, and sit with the eighth grade confirmation students um, when we used to sit them in the front row so we could keep an eye on them, um, <laughs> keep an eye on the seminarian who just showed up. It was right here. It was just right here. Um, I laid prostrate on the floor just right here. And then I kneeled in front of Bishop Grine and he laid his hands on my head as a representative of the apostles of Christ. And Father Peter and Mother Anne and others put their hands upon me at my ordination and that all happened right here. And the, 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 the best thing that will ever happen to me in my earthly life, being getting married to Jewel, it happened right here, right here at this altar. We have baptized your children right here. We have, we have buried people we loved right here. We have put God into each other's hands right here. It all happened right here. And I have to say, I, I really do hope that God has made the fact that he is love visible to you through me. I often have no idea how he can do this. I am a broken and sinful person. Jewel can tell you. I do pray <laughs> that God has made himself visible to you and that I have been your priest, but I can tell you for sure you have been mine. You have showed me your unfailing love for me and for Jewel and even for our little dog, our pesky little dog. You have showed me that this world is a beautiful place made by a loving God. You've shown me that John 3.17 is true. You have helped to convince me that the voice I heard that night when I was 17 was really the voice of the God of the universe. What has transpired between us is powerful. It is. It is. The love that I feel for you and that you feel for me, I know, it is powerful. It is old and it is ancient. And I have to say, it is just what God does with priests. I mean that. It's just what God does with priests. He does it over 
and over and over. They come and they go. For 2,000 years, they have come and they have gone. It's what God does. And now it's time, my friends, to say goodbye. I told you all of that, not because it's a story about me, but because it's a story about us. It's about what God has done for me through you and what I pray God has in spite of my sin done for you through me. I am going to miss you. And I know you're going to miss me too. And I just hope that when we miss each other, we will remember that none of this was actually about us. It was about something so much bigger than us. It was about the church, about what God does for the world through places like this, and people like me, and people like you. And since I've argued all along that God is a whole lot more like Mr. Rogers than you might think, I hope you won't mind if I end our time in this way. It's such a good feeling to know you're alive. It's such a happy feeling you're growing inside. And when you wake up, ready to say, I think I'll make a snappy new day. It's such a good feeling, a very good feeling, the feeling you know that God loves you. And I do too. And I know he'll take care of you. And to him you'll sing for eternity. I will too. sermons on our website, www.stmarksnewcanon.org.